This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. When I say a holistic approach, I say, well, you've got to increase your intake of minerals. You've got to increase your intake of things like protein. You gotta increase your intake of, you know, in addition to the glucosamines and the chondroitins, etc. You gotta increase your intake of even B vitamins because all those things work together to give you, to optimize your rebuilding process. Welcome to The Tonic. I'm your host, Jamie Busson, and we're here to talk about your health and wellness. Today, we'll learn about a philosophy of health and wellness. We'll discuss non-monogamy and polyamory. We'll find out about exercise when you have arthritis. And lastly, we'll hear how to choose the right cutting board. But first, a little bit of business. Omega Alpha is 100% Canadian-owned and has been GMP-certified for manufacturing to pharmaceutical standards since its inception in 1992. It uses only all-natural herbs, vitamins, and minerals in their formulations. The company is site-licensed for manufacturing nutraceuticals by the Natural Health Products Directorate, a division of Health Canada. They have four company divisions, both a consumer line and professional line of human products, equine pet health products, and a custom manufacturing private label division. Omega Alpha uses only the highest quality ingredients to manufacture the most efficacious yet price-friendly nutraceuticals. For more information about Omega Alpha, visit their website at omegaalphainc.com. Omega Alpha's products are created by their scientific team, headed by their owner, operator, and CEO, Dr. Gordon Chang. Dr. Chang holds a PhD in physiology and biomedical engineering from the University of Toronto. He also has two years postdoctoral experience in clinical biochemistry, looking at free radicals and antioxidants. He's published over 20 peer-reviewed articles and conference proceedings. Welcome back to the show, sir. How are you? Good, Jamie. Thanks for having me back again. Always a pleasure. Today, we're going to do something a little bit different, Gordon. We're going to talk about your approach to health and wellness, which I think if our listeners who've heard you before will sort of understand it, but I I think it's time that we sort of get your overview and how you approach nutraceuticals and health and wellness. Sound like a plan? Sounds like a plan. You know, one of the things that has been on my mind a lot is, is that we as the nutraceutical industry, supplement industry, we're almost like a pharmaceutical industry these days. And let me explain why I say that. Yeah. People come up to me and say, Gordon, I have a, a bum knee. What's good for that? Right? Or they say, I'm getting older, my skin is sagging. What is good for that? Or I'm losing my hair. What is good for that? Yeah. Or I'm having erectile dysfunction. What is good for that? So the message I'm getting from these people is that they want the magic bullet. Yeah. They want one ingredient that will do the job, and that's it. Whereas in the supplement industry or in the nutrition industry, we think of a holistic approach. And a holistic approach, people say the word holistic approach, but they don't really think too much about what they mean by a holistic approach. For me, when I say a holistic approach, I'm looking at all the different angles at which we can get better or improve or prevent whatever it is that ails us. And I'll use some examples here. You know, my analogy, I love my wall analogy. I always talk about the wall. Yeah. It's like I relate everything back to the wall. Right. So it's like I say to people, okay, somebody will say to me, I have a bad joint. 
what can I do for the joint? So back in the day when they newly discovered glucosamine, everybody says, oh, here's glucosamine. It's a building block, it'll help rebuild your cartilage. But what they don't realize, the glucosamine by itself is not gonna do the job. If you didn't take trace minerals, if you didn't take, and by that, and didn't take the macro minerals, I'm talking about calcium, magnesium, the trace minerals, I'm talking about zinc, copper, right, manganese, yes. right, and selenium, right. If you didn't take the B vitamins, right, you're shortchanging your, your rebuilding process. But everybody, a lot of times, people just say, glucosamine chondroitin, that's it, nothing else. Because right? everybody wants an easy fix, right? Like they want yeah, a simple and, answer, right? And and it's the one thing that they want to take, and then they get bummed out when they say they're not getting results. Yep. Right? And whereas when I say a holistic approach, I say, well, you've got to intake, increase your intake of, the, of minerals. You've got to increase your intake of things like protein. Right. You gotta increase your intake of you know, in addition to the glucosamines and the chondroitins, etc. You gotta increase your intake of even B vitamins because all those things work together to give you to optimize your rebuilding process. Yeah, and you know, my take is also like I always think of holistic treatments as being lifestyle treatments too, right? Like it's not going to fix you overnight. I mean, there are some nutraceuticals that will help you right away, but there are others where you, you kind of have to do it over a long term. And you also have to implement the lifestyle of healthy eating and exercise and sleep and mindfulness because it's, it's all interconnected. At least that's my approach. Yes. Right. But it's one thing to say it, another thing to put it into action. Oh, a lot of people 100%. say it without realizing it, but they don't put it into action. And they look for the one thing to fix it, right? Yeah, 100%. And the example, again, I go back to my joints. Yeah. If I have achy joints, right, there, and I, I can go to the pharmaceutical route and take a, an anti-inflammatory, right, which is great. You know what? I love anti-inflammatories. The problem with anti-inflammatories, long-term use, you know, it's not too good on your stomach. Yes. Right. But mm-hmm. at the, and I'll say to people at this point in time, which hurts more, your stomach or your knee? And if the answer is the knee, well, we'll take it for the knee until we have to worry about the stomach. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I'm one of those people that says a time and a place for everything. Exactly. Right. There are people who will be aching in the knees and they'll say, oh, I don't want to take drugs. I don't want drugs, drugs. You know? And I say, look, take it for a short term, get it under control, and then take the supplements and that will definitely help now fortunately you don't need to take anti-inflammatory drugs all the time there are herbs that have good anti-inflammatory properties right Mm -hmm. but they take a little bit longer to kick in but once they kick in they don't give you the same issues with the stomach than that you would have for anti-inflammatory drugs let's expand upon that because you've sort of touched upon something there and that is the nutraceutical supplements are generally safe. And I, I think that's a big takeaway point, right? Yes. The thing I wanted to, uh, people are very, very cautious about some of these herbs, etc. Yeah. And, and I'll say this, whether I like it or not, Health Canada has popped in there and they basically, they treat the nutraceuticals worse than they treat the, the drug industry. Meaning that if you have a herb that even smells that is going to give you a rough time, they're going to ban it. Okay, mm-hmm. and I use the example of Kava Kava. They banned Kava Kava now that it's back on the OK list. But I, I still remember there were like three cases or four cases of people around the world, around the world, right, who claimed that they had liver failure because of Kava Kava. Okay, but what they didn't realize, at the, well, they didn't realize or wasn't told was that these same people who had issues with the liver were taking 
high doses of drugs which were liver toxic, right? Mm-hmm. But all of a sudden, the blame fell on kava kava, which we do know does affect the liver. But the quantities that you're taking would be so... For you to get liver failure from kava kava, you'd probably have to ingest so much of it, right, that you'd probably be walking around with a kava high all the time. Yes. Right. And one of the things that people don't realize, but a lot of these different herbs, they've been around for a long time. They've been in use for a long time. And a, a lot of the herbs, especially the Chinese medicinal herbs, there's a lot of information as to efficacy and safety. Key here is safety. Yep. And the safety margins on these herbs are huge. Now, getting back to Health Canada, because they are so extremely extra cautious, if they give you a blessing, to put a herb on the market, it is generally very, very safe. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now, in all fairness, sometimes there's always one person who's going to have a reaction. Mm-hmm. Okay. And I hate to say it like this, but sometimes I say, if you're that person that's going to have a reaction, it sucks to be you. Do not use it. Find something else. Okay. Mm-hmm. And it, it harkens back to the thing I saw. There was, what is it? Green tea extract. Remember, there were some people who were taking green tea extract way back when. Yep. And even though they hadn't proved it, they basically said green tea extract, I think, was doing bad things to the liver, etc. right? But for the vast majority of people who took it, not a problem. It didn't have a problem at all, right? So, you know, there's always going to be some people who will have a reaction. So, for example, peanuts, yep. soy. Right? There are people who, have, people who have allergic reactions to rice, you know. So if you have one person who have a new reaction to rice, does that mean we don't sell rice anymore? You know? no, exactly. So there's no. a lot of these type of reactions that do occur out there. It's like anything else. If you happen to be with, just do not use. Okay. Now, the nice thing about any of these reactions, most of these reactions are not, not life-threatening. Right. So you have lots of ample warning that you're going to have a reaction. And in cases, if you think it's going to be because of the herb or what have you, just discontinue use. One of the things I tell people, if you think you're going to have a reaction, stop using it for a couple of weeks. Right. Mm-hmm. Then start again after all your symptoms disappear. Because sometimes there are some other things going on in your life. Right, that causes a reaction or causes you to have a certain symptom and you just associate it with the product. And sometimes it may not be associated with the product at all, right? There are people who get diarrhea and they say, oh, it's because I, I ate this particular raw material or this particular herbal product, right? Mm-hmm. But they could have gotten diarrhea because, you know what? I had the one-day flu. It could have been I ate some bad sushi, I ate some old food, but they never associate the diarrhea with any of those things because they'll say, oh, it's the, it's a product I've been taking because I have done nothing different in, my, in the whole day, yeah. which is not true. Let's talk a bit about quality of the nutraceutical products because, you know, as a consumer, you know, you can go to a store and there, there's all sorts of products out there. How do you judge quality? What should you be looking for from your perspective? In, in Canada, we are a regulated industry. Mm-hmm. The nutraceutical industry is regulated. And what that means is that we have um, criteria that we have to meet before we can put any of these products out on the market. Mm-hmm. Okay. Health Canada regulates the nutraceutical industry very efficiently. Okay, so they look at things. It's a, always a risk-benefit analysis, okay? So they make you test for things like heavy metals, right? They make you test for your finished product for bacteria, microbiology, etc. Mm-hmm. Right? So we 
are very regulated. So in Canada, and I can't say for the rest of the world, okay, I'm just talking about Canada, if your product is made in Canada, it's made in a factory that is licensed, right, so meaning that it's not coming out of your basement or somebody else's <laughs> basement, yeah. okay, yeah. the raw materials have been tested, okay, Mm-hmm. You know, and whether I like it or not, I think regulations have been good for, for the industry, for the general consumer, because they are sh- assured that the product that they're getting meets certain requirements. Do you batch test? Do you do that? Yeah, we test all our batches for heavy metals and microbiology. And it's a process, though. I don't want people to think I just do one thing, because one of yeah. the things is that the quality control is tracing the product, the raw materials from the beginning to the end. Okay. Right? Mm-hmm. So, as an example, a raw material comes into our factory, a herb. You hear the horror stories about people say, oh, this herb comes in, and I check the gin. For example, ginseng is the one that's the classic. They say that we check the ginseng, and this particular capsule has no ginseng in it at all whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Well, one of the things that we have done in our facility, we have something called an HPLC, high-pressure liquid chromatography. And what that means is that we test every single herb that comes in here to verify identity. So the reason we did that was because back in the day, like, for example, if I was to buy ginseng as a powder form, you know, in all fairness, you look at it, it comes in as a powder, you look at it, you could put anything in there and tell me it's ginseng, and I have no choice but to believe you because I looked at it, it looks like ginseng, it can smell like ginseng, but it may not be ginseng. Hmm. Now, what the HPLC does is that Every single herb or every single plant material that we use has a very specific fingerprint, meaning that it has certain compounds. These certain compounds come out at a certain time in the chromatography process. So from batch to batch, I can run it through and say, okay, this is definitely that because I see the compounds and I see that the timing when it came out, so it matches up with previous batches, so I know it's the same herb, right? Mm -hmm. And that's one of the things that we have done in our facility. And the reason we have done that is because we have the machine, right? And that machine is expensive, but we have the ability to do it. So that guarantees the purity and that that what you say is in your pills and capsules is exactly what's in there. Well, that's important. That's right. Let's talk a, a quick second about organics. Do you think it matters whether or not the nutraceutical or herb is organic? You know, in a perfect world, I would say yes. But you know what? Some things you can't get if you're organic if your life depended on it. Right? Because <laughs> there's organic and then there's what's called certified organic. Right. right? Yep. Mm-hmm. You know, now, what people think about organic is sometimes they think organic means that there's no pesticides. And my favorite story about that is that, let's say I'm Farmer Brown, and I'm growing things organically in my little patch of earth. Well, Farmer Tom is next door to me. Farmer George is up a bit from me. And Farmer Sam is next door to me, too. Right? And none of them grow stuff organically. Guess what? Every time it rains, guess where the water goes? The water doesn't say, hey, I am Farmer Tom, that my patch of grass is organic, so none of that water gets into my patch of grass. No, it does get into your patch of grass. Right. Mm-hmm. Every time I drive by and my car is belching out stuff, right? If I drive by the road close to the organic farm, guess what? Ends up on the organic farm's field, right? The difference with the organics is that they do not intentionally put any pesticides, etc., on it, right? So if I look at the grand scheme of things, I'll probably say, well, I'm growing organically. So instead of finding 20 parts per billion of pesticides, I might end up with one part per billion of, of pesticide, 
right? Because it came from out extraneous sources, right? In this world today, whether I like it or not, pesticides are everywhere. Yep. They find pesticides up in the Antarctic, right? In the snow in the Antarctic. So if you can find pesticides in the snow in the Antarctic, I know it's everywhere. Yep. Right? I, I, I'm sorry, I'm very cynical about that, but that's the way it is. Well, I asked the question, Gordon. That's reality. Well, we only want to hear about reality. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you for having me again, Jimmy. That was Dr. Gordon Chang. We have to take a short break, but we'll be right back on The Tonic. The Tonic is brought to you by Purely Natural. Their liquid greens chlorophyll is the only line of soluble, grit-free, and great-tasting greens on the market. Liquid greens can easily be mixed with your favorite drink to provide a sustained natural boost of energy to help you get through your day. There's unflavored, which is great with orange juice. The mint flavor is cool and refreshing. Dark chocolate has all the health benefits of a salad, but with a great chocolate taste. And for that extra detox boost, try activated charcoal and mint. Enjoy the energy. Enjoy the detox. Enjoy the great taste. Purely natural liquid greens. Need better sleep? Brought to you by Ultramedics Supreme. Adjustable bed, sleep apnea, arthritis, and back pain. I've had all of them, and I'm ready for relief. Find rest with the Supreme, the only adjustable bed that allows you to customize your back, leg, neck, and lumbar position with the push of a button. This holiday season, give the gift of sleep. Save the taxes and receive a free nine-piece sleep bundle on the Supreme Adjustable Base. Learn more at Ultramatic.ca. Elevate your sleep. This is The Tonic on Zoomer Radio. Carlisle Jansen is a sex therapist and founder of Good For Her, Toronto's premier sexuality store and workshop center. She's the author of two books, including Sex Yourself, and you can find her educational videos and TED Talk at carlislejansen.com. She can be contacted at carlisle at goodforher.com. Welcome back to the show, my friend. How are you? Hi, I'm well, thanks, which is good in these COVID times. How about yourself? I'm doing well, actually. I'm thriving. All it took was a pandemic. (laughs) (laughs) Wow, good for you then, making some lemonade out of lemons. Exactly. So we're talking about an interesting topic today, and it's one that you and I have never discussed and it's never been touched upon, although there's going to be a great article in the January, February issue of the magazine all about it, and that is non-traditional pairings, non-monogamy and polyamory. Yeah. So we're talking about relationships that are outside of the binary two partners. Aren't we really just talking about cheating? No. Cheating is when you have an agreement, and sometimes it's explicit and sometimes it's just implied, like we're a couple, so it's assumed that we're not connecting with anybody else, where that those rules are broken. So you can make up whatever rules you want, mm-hmm. and in a monogamous relationship, you can decide that, you know, holding hands with somebody else isn't okay, or spending a lot of time with somebody else isn't okay, or is okay, and the same thing about ethical non-monogamy, and we talk about it as consensual or ethical non-monogamy because everybody knows what the parameters are, everybody agrees to them, nobody's been coerced, and everybody's good with it. So it's not cheating unless you break those rules as well, which which can happen even in a non-monogamous relationship. Sure, because sometimes the, the rules are fluid, right? Like you push the envelope and you find, well, you know, maybe those rules that we had before don't make sense, but we'll come to that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I mean, certainly, you know, we're... 
it's a different model, right? The yeah. model that we've been given is monogamy, and so there's always variables that come up around. Oh well, I you know I didn't think you were having dinner with them, or I didn't think yeah. you were going to meet their family. Right. Exactly. <laughs> right. And yeah. then you realize, oh, okay, that's not cool with me. So how common is this? You know, it's actually quite common. So one study said that one in five Americans, I'm not sure about Canadians, but I'm assuming it's about the same, has tried some version of ethical non-monogamy. And that people in relationships right now, approximately 5% of people are practicing some form of non-monogamy. And interestingly, millennials are really into it and believe that non-monogamy is the best relationship style for them. So one in three have decided this is the way that they want to live their lives. With those numbers, is that including the rule breakers or is this all consensual? (laughs) You know what? That's a really good question. I think we're talking about consensual non-monogamy. And then you need to add on top of that people who are cheating. But then, you know, that's not really what we want to advocate for. No, no, I'm not advocating. I'm just just curious. That's all. But, you know, it'd be really much better if those who were cheating were able to really come clean to their partners and say, look, you know what, I really feel like I need more than one partner, you know, for these reasons. And, you know, maybe the partner wants to do the same, too. And then you can actually have it all out in the open and have a much more connected, open and honest relationship where you can build more trust and deeper intimacy with each other. Okay. Before we come to the nitty gritty of sort of navigating those types of relationships, perhaps we should nail down some terminology. So I'm going to, I'm going to throw some words out and you tell me what it means. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So we talked about non-monogamy, but, but what is an open relationship? Well, it's where you are married or you just are in a committed relationship and whether other sex and relationships are allowed. So it's kind of non-monogamy, but where you're kind of committed to one person at least. Okay. And what is polyamory? So this is where you have many loves, which is the Greek or Latin for polyamory. Mm -hmm. And it's where you want more than one committed romantic relationship. So these people who are polyamorous generally want, don't want casual sex. They don't want one-offs. They want people that they can commit to and usually more than one at a time. Although sometimes they have what's called a primary partner where they share finances, they might share parenting, they might share housing situation. And then sometimes they might have more secondary partners where they don't have quite the same commitments. And what is polyfidelity? <laughs> so this is where you're in kind of a closed relationship. So you're not having sex outside of, say, your three or five or 20 people <laughs> that you are connected to. And so there's no relationships outside of that one group. So next would be polygamy. So polygamy is having more than one spouse. So you're married. It's usually one person Mm -hmm. with multiple spouses, and those spouses don't really have the freedom and choice to pursue other romantic relationships. And that often has, there's often some kind of a religious undertone to those. And then there's good old swinging. Yeah, so this is more about recreational sex. So a couple generally will have recreational sex. They might go to a swingers club with other people outside of their committed relationship. And they might do it with a single. They might do it with another couple. They might, you know, see the same people over and over again. They might practice with different people. So the idea is that it's really, it's recreational sex. It's for pleasure. It's for fun, but not usually other committed relationships. Okay. 
Let's talk about navigating these types of relationships because I, you know, like one-on-one could be complicated enough and then you're adding a whole other element to it. So what are the keys to success if you're going to consider something like this? Yeah. And many of these keys are really not that different from what you want in any kind of relationship. So the first is honesty. And you have to be honest with yourself about what you're okay with what you're not okay with, what you want, what you don't want. And, you know, we have sometimes this sense that if you have a boundary or you feelings or you get jealous about something that somehow that makes you less than or it's not as good as somebody who's just like open to anything. But that's not really true. You know, it's important to know what your boundaries are. It's important to share your feelings and just be honest with your partner about that. Mm-hmm. Then built on that is trust. I mean, really trust is essential for any relationship. And so you need to trust that your partner is following the boundaries that are set out, that you can trust them, that they are going to be um, open and honest and tell you what's going on. Mm-hmm. Consent. So we're talking about consensual non-monogamy so that there everybody knows about, everybody agrees to what the parameters are and everybody feels good about it to whatever extent they're prepared to. And there isn't sort of, you know, well, I'll do it so that you'll love me or I'll do right. it um, because it's easier than breaking up. You know, that's not true consent. And you want to make sure that everybody uh, feels good about it. Mm-hmm. Clear boundaries, you know, what works, what doesn't work for you. What I always recommend is don't throw it open to, if you're just exploring this, like, oh, let's do anything, anytime, right? Yeah. Go with uh, open a little bit and see how it goes. And then, of course, the next one is communication. Right, yeah. <laughs> So if you think that communication is hard in a monogamous relationship, when you get into polyamorous relationships, you spend all... Some people are always surprised. They're like, wow, I spend more time communicating than having sex. I really thought this that opening up the relationship was going to be about sex, which it can be, but communication is key and you have to talk to a lot of people a lot more. And then finally... If that isn't uh, a reason not to do it, I don't know what is, but... <laughs> Yeah, if you're not a good communicator, (laughs) you know, and that's probably why people end up cheating is that they aren't good communicators. And then you really need a Google calendar to share with all your different people, you know, when you're available and when you're not available. And um, and then some people also will put, say, a Google Doc that shared about their last test for sexually transmitted infections. Okay. So assuming that this is something that one might want to explore... How do you broach the topic? How do you discuss this when it's not been raised previously? Yeah, I mean, I think it's really important to be honest about um, what you want, not like what's missing, (laughs) but, you know, what's really good about the relationship, that you feel trust, that you want to improve it, and that you think that for both of you, it might be an interesting thing to open things up. So talking about do we do things together or do we do things apart? You know, do we want to know what's going on and all the details, or do we want really more of a don't ask, don't tell kind of a relationship? So it's not good to bring it up when things aren't going so well. It's not good to bring it up when there's a lot going on in your partner's life. But you want to bring it up when things are, are going relatively well and you've sorted out a lot of things because then you've got a solid foundation. Right. I'm sure as a therapist, you deal with this. What happens when one is ready for this and one isn't? That's really challenging. And, you know, it's all about negotiation. 
and boundaries. Sometimes what we can do is pretend we're having an open relationship. So sometimes what people will decide is that let's pretend we're having a third person having sex with us. Or sometimes what I recommend is go to a sex club. Now, this is a little bit challenging in COVID times, but go to a sex club and just watch or have sex only with each other. So you're not going to do anything else and get a bit of a sense of of what's going on. Um, Read some books, talk some to some people at the sex club, get information so that you can get a better sense of what might be in it for you, especially the person who's not so interested. And the person who really wants this, really honing in on what is really important to you about this. And, you know, and it might, ha- you know, it's pretty hard to do it part way. Yeah, I was going to say, once the cat's out of the bag, like, aren't you in a different place? Well, kind of. It's a little bit like having kids. It's hard for one to have kids in the other one not to. Some people navigate that, but you do have to kind of decide, is this a deal breaker? Or some people do decide, like, look, we're going to do a don't ask, don't tell. You do what you're doing. I just don't want to know when you're doing it. I don't know who you're connecting with. I don't want to know any details so that I can just enjoy what we have. That sounds like great advice. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Always a pleasure. Next month, we're going to discuss how to share your fantasies and desires with your partner. That was Carlisle Jansen. We have to take a short break, but when we return, we'll discuss exercise when you have arthritis. On The Tonic. Medicinal mushrooms offer a multitude of health benefits, including immune support, improved energy, and stress reduction. All medicinal mushrooms from New Roots Herbal are hot water extracted, so you get their full health benefits. Discover reishi, lion's mane, or resilience, a seven mushroom blend. Find the complete selection of New Roots Herbal medicinal mushrooms exclusively at quality health food stores. To learn more, visit newrootsherbal.com. And to ensure these products are right for you, always read and follow the label. Hi, I'm Jamie Buston. I'm not only the host of the Tonic Talk Show and podcast, I'm also the publisher of Tonic Magazine. Tonic's a health and wellness publication distributed with the Globe and Mail to each and every home subscriber in Toronto, west of Victoria Park. And it can be found free on racks at over 100 locations across the GTA. You can learn more about Tonic Magazine at tonictoronto.com. Hey, if you like the Tonic Talk Show, check out the new look of Tonic Magazine. Everyone's talking about it, but do you really know what the Lemonade is? Don't worry, that's why I'm here to tell you. The Lemonade is an era that doesn't understand age, but understands attitude. An era in which taking care of yourself is a must. And to do it, nothing like lemons from Europe. World leader of fresh lemon export. Welcome to the era of vitamin C. To the era of flavor, of freshness, of creativity. Welcome to the Lemon Age with lemons from Europe. Enjoy, it's from Europe. You're listening to The Tonic on Sumer Radio. Dr. Aaron Boynton, or Dr. B, is an orthopedic surgeon with a unique approach to musculoskeletal pain blending both the art and science of medicine. As the first female orthopedic surgeon to work in the MLB and NHL, she has extensive experience dealing with overuse and wear and tear injuries. Welcome back to the show, doctor. How are you? I'm doing great, Jamie. How are you doing? And and thanks so much for having me. I'm doing very well today. It's a beautiful day as we record this, and that's all all good. Today, we're going to talk about a cohort of people who are suffering from arthritis and who may want to exercise. And you're going to tell us today whether or not that's a good idea, and if so, what sort of exercises. Yes? 
Absolutely. Absolutely. For those who don't know, what is arthritis? So arthritis is painful swelling of a joint that's often associated with cartilage damage. There are over a hundred causes of arthritis. We're focusing mainly today on the most common, which is wear and tear or degenerative osteoarthritis. Okay. And this comes up with people who've been running for a long time or who've been active for decades and just wear and tear on the body. Yeah? Exactly. All right. So if one has arthritis of this type and has been used to exercising, does that mean we have to stop exercising? Well, this is the beauty. No, you don't have to stop exercising. And the key really is to not stop moving, but to change how you're moving. Okay. So if you use running as an example, and say you've got a sore knee, and the way that you've been running is overloading your joint and creating wear and tear in the cartilage, you get pain, you get stiff, then what you need to do is look at why is your knee being overloaded. Mm -hmm. And what I find is that... Uh, It has to do with the mobility and the strength of the surrounding joints. Mm -hmm. So the key is to actually look above and below. Mm -hmm. So you don't stop running, but you have to modify your activities because you don't want to keep beating on the sore knee because it's telling you something. It's telling you that it's being overloaded. But what you want to do is actually improve the mobility and strength of your foot and ankle and your hip. And, and the, then that will take the pressure off your knee and allow you to go back to your running. And the best way to do that is is to actually exercise those joints, right? Exactly. Because we lose what we don't use. Okay. So if we're not active uh, and we're not moving, then we actually become weaker mm-hmm. and stiffer, which then perpetuates the problem. All right. I, I, don't want, I don't want to get ahead of myself here, but you're saying you, to exercise so to, to maintain mobility so that you can continue to exercise... Does the exercise serve to help cure the arthritis? Can it help it? It won't necessarily put cartilage back on the end of the bone or completely reverse any arthritic change in the cartilage, but you can stop the progression of arthritis. And in the most, I think in the very earliest stages, you can correct or reverse any of the um, arthritic changes. So the key, though, is that don't keep doing what you're doing. Right. Don't keep beating yeah. a dead horse. What you, de- you have to do is to change how you're loading the joint. And the motion itself, our body is amazing. It will respond to the movement and heal in response to that movement. So the exercise uh, is one of the most important things for you to do. All right. So let's talk about you know, what the purpose of exercise is when you have arthritis. Let's get a little bit more specific. Okay, so you you have to be realistic in your goal. It depends on how arthritic your joint is. If you've got bone-on-bone arthritis, you're not going to be running your your fastest mile. But let's say you're very early in the the stage of the game. Then what the goals need to be, one, are to improve the mobility of the joints above and below to change how you're loading the joint. So that's one goal of the exercise. Mm -hmm. The second is move the parts of your body that aren't necessarily affected. So set up just a daily movement goal. Say it's your knee that's painful and you're really sore and you're not able to move and walk at this particular time. Then set up some exercises for your core, for your arms, for your foot and for your ankle so that you can prepare your body to be ready to run in the future. Um, And we know that there's really excellent health benefits from just changing position. 
that if you change position once every 20 minutes during your workday, it's the health equivalent of running for 30 minutes. So you're going to decrease your risk of heart disease, cancer, depression, Alzheimer's disease, and, and all these other important things. So when you say change position, do you mean get up from your desk and go for a walk, or does it mean stand at your desk? Like, what do you mean by that? Depends on how sore you are. Okay. So let's say that you're too sore to walk. You're going to just get up and you're going to stand, mm-hmm. and then you're going to sit down again. If you're able to get up and walk, then I want you to walk. And one of the keys that I find in decreasing the pain in the arthritic joint is to just isometrically contract the surrounding muscles. So if your knee is sore, squeeze the muscles in your thigh, squeeze the muscles in your calf. Mm -hmm. And what this does is it pumps any congestion or fluid out of the surrounding area so that the tissue pliability is improved and your motion is actually better and it allows the muscles to then protect the joint better. So when you're in that really painful state, activate the muscles isometrically around the joint that's painful and then focus on the joint's in the part of your body that aren't hurting as much to prepare you to be ready to then get out and get moving in a a more strenuous uh, fashion in the future. Do we have to alter the frequency of our exercises once we have arthritis? I think that it depends on your symptoms. So use pain and swelling as your guide. Mm -hmm. If you're feeling great and you know you have some arthritis in your knee and you're tolerating going and running every day, go and do it. But if you're noticing some stiffness that's starting to creep in, then maybe use that as a warning to start looking at the mobility of the joint above and below and maybe don't run as far, don't run quite as fast, maybe go every other day until you can get that feeling of stiffness and swelling under control. Don't let the joint really blow up. Maybe my ignorance, but is this a question of load-bearing? Like if we were to do something like swimming, for example, which isn't load-bearing, is that going to be a good way of dealing with this or is it more case by case with something like that? You know what? That's an excellent alternative. I love the pool for people with arthritic joints because you're able to turn your muscles on without overloading that part of your body. And that's one of the key things is to keep your muscles awake and aware of their job in your body, what they're supposed to be doing without the load. So you're you're correct. It's a, it's a great tool. What if you know, and I don't suffer like this, but what if your joints are just so bad that even moving a little bit really, really causes pain? What, what do you do then? Well, I think there's a couple of things. One, you should probably check with your doctor and yes. speak with them about getting some medication and making sure you've got an accurate diagnosis of what's going on. Yep. I'm not a huge believer in long-term anti-inflammatory medications, but depending on the type of arthritis you have, you, you may have to take medication. For typical wear and tear osteoarthritis in the beginning, you don't, you don't need medication, mm-hmm. but short-term use of anti-inflammatories, I believe, can be very beneficial because it can keep you moving. Right. Because the downside of not moving can catch up with you pretty quickly. So when you're talking about keeping moving and, and, and you know the isometrics, is the goal to build muscle around these joints? Like, should people be actively building muscle? Or is it more about the ligaments and the tendons than the actual muscle mass? So initially, when you've got that really painful period with your arthritis, it's yeah. just about turning on the muscles and pulling on the tissues because okay. it, it helps with the tissue pliability. Eventually, once you've got your mobility back and you're feeling good and you don't have as much pain, then you want to build strength. 
it's so important to keep a balance of motion and strength around our joints to prevent them from being overloaded and wearing out. Yeah. And, and, and I guess I would say, you know, that the next thing is make sure that you're exercising all parts of your body, right? You know, like running obviously is a full body exercise. And if you're replacing running with something else, you should be making sure that all the joints are, are being worked, right? Yeah. And it, it kind of comes back to your point of, geez, maybe we should do some swimming. Yeah. Well, I really like cross training. Sure. I think that yeah. what happens is that if you do one activity over and over and over again, then you develop imbalances, which lead to joint overload, which leads to wear and tear, which can create arthritis. But if you move your body and challenge your body in different ways all of the time, you don't develop the same kind of imbalances and um, and joint overload. So don't they say that variety is the spice of life? They do. They say it. And, and now we've said it. <laughs> is there a risk that arthritis will get worse if we exercise through it? You know what? If you keep doing what you were doing and don't listen to your body and you're pounding away on your knee and forcing yourself to go that extra mile and limping and limping around, yes, you're going to make it worse. And one of the most common um, issues that I see, Jamie, is that people will have a sore body part, their knee's sore they're run- from running, yep. they stop, they rest for six weeks, they feel better, they're walking without a limp, then they go back out and they just start again. Yep. And the knee pain gradually comes back. So the message is really to change how you're moving. How can you take the pressure off the part of your body that is being overloaded and painful? So we don't want to just keep reinventing the wheel and reinventing the arthritis. You need to change how you're moving. We have time for one last question, and that is, how should we decide to stop a particular activity when we're exercising with arthritis? Is it simply the pain threshold or something else? Pain is definitely uh, it's the quality of pain. Yep. So if it's a really sharp pain and sudden, then you should stop. And swelling, to me, is one of the most important indications that there's some damage going on in the joint. But if you have a little bit of stiffness and sort of a muscle pulling as you start your exercise that kind of resolves and you know starts to feel better as you're moving, then I don't consider that a, um, a message to stop. So it's a sharp pain and swelling where I get concerned. Fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Well, uh, it's my pleasure to be here, and um, I hope that you're able to uh, get out and move around a bit before uh, Christmas so you can enjoy all of your holiday feasts. Will do. Next month, we're going to discuss rotator cuff injuries. That was Dr. Aaron Boynton. We have to take a short break, but when we return, we'll discuss how to find the right cutting board on the tonic. The Big Carrot is a worker-owned natural food market that's been committed to local, organic, non-GMO, and sustainable food systems since 1983. They're a one-stop shop offering produce, grocery, bulk, body care, and holistic dispensary. The juice and smoothie bars and kitchens serve up hundreds of healthy dishes and drinks daily. Building community is at the core of their vision, which they deliver through education, outreach, and giving. They want everyone to share in the goodness they offer. Visit their website for more information at thebigcarrot.ca. Hi, I'm Jamie Buston. I'm not only the host of the Tonic Talk Show and podcast, I'm also the publisher of Tonic Magazine. Tonic's a health and wellness publication distributed with the Globe and Mail to each and every home subscriber in Toronto, west of Victoria Park. And it can be found free on racks at over 100 locations across the GTA. You can learn more about Tonic Magazine at tonictoronto.com. Hey, if you like the Tonic Talk Show, check out the new look of Tonic Magazine. This is The Tonic on Zoomer Radio. 
Carolyn Tanner Cohen is the owner and founder of Delicious Dish Cooking School in Toronto. She's been teaching cooking classes for 17 years. She has a science background which edifies her interest in health and fulfilling the body with foods that will optimize health. Carolyn teaches people how to meal plan, eat healthy, cook with natural whole foods, and organize their kitchen. She teaches new cooks, seasoned cooks, university students who are living on their own for the first time, nannies, housekeepers, and everyone in between. For more information about Carolyn, you can visit deliciousdish.ca. Welcome back to the show. Hi, Jamie. Thank you so much. So I enjoy these uh, conversations where we talk about sort of how to outfit the kitchen because, you know, it gets lost, right? Like there's reasons why we do certain things. And there's, for example, today, there's a reason why or reasons why we use cutting boards, right? For sure. Well, also everybody's sort of sitting at home. They're cooking more. Yep. And they're maybe on their computer more and doing a little more online shopping. (laughs) Yep. Yeah. That's the big excitement, right? Yeah. yeah, You start sort of taking inventory of what you have and don't have in your kitchen. Yep. Okay. Let's do this. So why would you want a good cutting board? Like, why why does it matter? Well, the cutting board really is the foundation of your prep. Yep. So it's important that you start with a good foundation. And, you know, you need to be chopping properly. You need to be chopping safely. And I know you might be thinking, like, safely, what does that have to do with the cutting board? Okay. Yeah. As opposed to the knife. Well, it has to do with both. Yep. So the cutting board and the knife work together. Exactly. Right. You don't want it to slip on a surface, right? If you had sort no. of, and you know, you don't want your food to move around and that's where accidents occur and you cut yourself. Right. And okay. some people actually, I don't know if you know this, but some people actually cut on their counters. It's a bad idea because it can ruin the counter. That's for sure. Well, it could, fruit, and your knife. Yeah. Right. So my rule of thumb first is the surface of your cutting board should be softer than your knife. Yes. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, 100%. Right. Which means, so let's get like the no's out before the yeses. Which means don't be cutting on a glass cutting board. Yep. Don't be cutting on a ceramic cutting board. Those things are really nice, but let's get rid of them and use them only for serving food. Okay. Or even as like a trivet. Yep. So they're nice for serving food, or if you want to use them to put food onto as you chop on something else, that's fine. But they are not cutting boards because the surface is firmer, let's call it, than the knife, and there's no give to those cutting boards, which means your knife is going to slip as you cut. And of course, your food is going to slip as you cut. Right. And also, you may dull your knives against a surface that is hard. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Okay. So that's number one. Yeah. What's number two? So number two is then how do you choose the right cutting board? Right. So first and foremost, I always say that a large cutting board and a large knife is safer than a small cutting board and a small knife. Mm-hmm. So a lot of people still cut with like almost like a paring size knife yeah. on a small little cutting board. You're going to find that there's no room for you. There's no room for your knife to really move around. And cutting large items, even a, little, even a small pile of herbs, is easier to do with a big knife. And if you're going to be using a big knife, you need a large cutting board. I almost invariably use a chef's knife. Me too. Unless I'm doing like citrus segments or something like that, where I need right. you need more finesse. Exactly. Uh, I will always use the biggest knife I have. Yeah, I'm the exact same. So in that situation, then you can't use a small cutting board. The next no that I would say is those flimsy kind of like roll up plastic cutting boards. Okay, so you and I may differ here. Like, I just want to make sure we're talking about the same thing. Are Are you talking about the ones which literally roll up or the ones that have some flex to them? The ones that have some flex to them, I guess. 
Okay, because I, I actually prefer those. Why? Because yeah. you can pick up the food that you've chopped and sort of use it as not a funnel, but a, like you can pour yeah. it into the pot or the pan and it's just easier. You don't lose the food and it's okay. easier to store. And, and if you get a good one, you can put them into the dishwasher. Okay, so I hear what you're saying and that makes sense to me. For me, I don't like them because there's not enough give on the board. I oh. like a board that has a little bit of weight, and you really feel it on the underside of your knife. Okay. So if I'm going to use plastic, which I definitely do, yep. Okay. I use like a heavy-duty plastic, and they're not very expensive, so you can replace them every few years mm-hmm. or every year if you're, you know, a serious cook. Mm-hmm. But the nice thing about those is that they go in the dishwasher. So yeah. I have one or two of those, and I reserve them for raw meat or fish or chicken. Yeah. Okay. And yet one thing with the thin ones, I will say, is you have to watch that you haven't cut through. Because yeah. once you cut through, that's where the bacteria and the germs stay, yeah. even if you run it through the dishwasher. So exactly. one, once it's cut through, it's NG. You have to get rid of it. It is NG. <laughs> but, you know, Jamie, they do deteriorate in the dishwasher. True. So as long as you know that and yeah. you're okay with that and you'll replace it, all cutting boards deteriorate in the no, dishwasher, even if they say they're dishwasher safe. Sure. And they're safe. To, it's a good idea to put a cutting board in the dishwasher if you've put raw food on it. Oh, okay? yeah, of course. Yes, you should do that. So that's nice. So for me... 90% of the time, yep. and the, the other 10% is raw meat, yep. uh, raw meat, chicken, or fish. Yep. So 90% of the time, I use a very heavy-duty wood or bamboo cutting board. I love bamboo mm-hmm. because it feels like wood, yep. and it has the heft of when you're cutting, but not the heft of wood in weight. Right. Is and it, it also can go in the dishwasher. Is it firm enough, though, or does it take in a lot of knife marks once you use it? It's actually great. I just got a new one. Mm-hmm. recently and i'm super excited about it because they don't warp like a wood cutting board does okay and what i love about this one and now we're just going to get into the particularities of a cutting board yep. the nitty-gritty the anatomy of the cutting board i love it because one side of it is flat and this goes for the wood ones too so one side of it is flat mm-hmm. and then the other side of it has a really nice moat which you want yep. or groove like for your juices which is lovely yep and also, on one corner of the moat, there's a pouring spout. Yeah. So that's really cool. It's the first cutting board that I've ever had that had that. So when I cut like a roast or whatever and I have some nice gravy, I'm able to pour it over the meat after onto its serving platter. Yeah, and that's why I like the flexible ones because you can kind yes. of, if you're if you're dexterous enough, you can sort of, yes. you can make a little pouring root for juices. Yes. So yeah. long as it doesn't slip off before you get to that stage. Well, as I said, you have to be dexterous. <laughs> right? Yeah. What's really cool about my new one too, it's a total gimmick, but it's kind of neat. For, not for me, but for a yeah. lot of people. There's a little groove in it for your phone to stand up in. Oh, okay. Pretty cool. I mean, I don't read recipes. I don't want my phone anywhere near where I'm working because it's just going to get dirty and F up. But some people, you know, they like their little videos and they look at the phone while they're cutting. Okay, so another really important thing for me for a wood cutting board is, and I think you know me already, I hate doing dishes. Okay, like I hate doing dishes. I know everyone says this, but I cook like 90% of the day, so I hate doing dishes. Yeah, I know. I don't blame you. Yeah. Yeah. So the whole idea of this like pretty little mise en place Mm -hmm. is like putting all your prep into little bowls doesn't fly with me because it just means I have to clean up all the little bowls. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So what I love about my big wood cutting board is that I'll prep the vegetables. So I chop my broccoli, push it to a corner, chop the ginger, push it to the corner. I treat it as a mise en place 
place, there's loads of room for me to be chopping in the center or off center Mm -hmm. and start preparing my little prep area or my mise en place all over the board. That's good. I've always concerned about wood. Because, you know, we have like wooden spoons and once the wood splits, it's the same issue as like a knife mark through the plastic, right? Like that's where the bacteria sits. So what sort of finish are you looking for and how would, do you oil your boards or or proof them? Okay, so this is, yes. So once it splits, you got to consider getting rid of it. It shouldn't happen very fast. So what I do, first let's talk about how to wash it. Yep. Okay. So you wash it after with soap and water for sure. Okay, you wipe it down, so towel it off, and then I stand it up on its edge to dry. So for me, what works in my kitchen is I stand it up behind my burners on my stove, Mm -hmm. and I lean it against the wall. Mm -hmm. And I have a little groove there. It's perfect for my board. And I let it dry overnight, and then in the morning, I put it away. Every so often, I will rub it down with mineral oil. Not each time, but I definitely do do it sometimes. So I'm thinking about it now and feeling a little guilt that I haven't done it in a while. Mm -hmm. But I would say like once a week, it wouldn't be a bad idea to towel it off, let it dry overnight, rub it with mineral oil and give it another little dry. So you don't want to rub it with mineral oil when it's wet. Mm -hmm. Okay. You could buy, you could definitely buy mineral oil online or you could buy it at your local, you know, kitchen store. And, you know, you could buy a cream that's very similar, even, even uh, beeswax does a great job and it's edible, right? You're not cutting meat on the, on the wood board, are you? No, I'm not. I'm not cutting raw meat on the wood board. Okay. Only cooked food on the wood cutting board or vegetable. Mm -hmm. Okay. So anything raw goes on my dishwasher safe, heavy-duty plastic, or in your situation, the flimsier, and I say that with the utmost respect, boards that go in the dishwasher. Definitely not ever raw meat. So the moral of the story is wood for things that are cooked or vegetable, a big board, a big knife, and you will reap big rewards. That makes total sense. Yep. Yeah. So that's a really important, you know, lesson to learn. So it's important that you do replace your boards every once in a while. Mm-hmm. You're looking for, if you are looking to choose a new a new wood board, lightweight for its size mm-hmm. and thickness. And that's why I love bamboo because it really is like that. And large enough to hold a lot of veg and larger cuts of meat, but not too large that you can't store it or lift it. Yep. Okay. Mm-hmm. So there you go. There it is. Now, In terms of your knives, a wood board will not dull your knives. Over time, your knives will dull naturally, but it won't be because of your wood board. They will dull if you're using a ceramic or a glass board. Or no board. Or no board, for sure. Right. Okay? Yep. There you go. And one other thing which you should remember, just because your board has warped a little bit, and it hasn't split, but it's warped. So that happens sometimes, especially with less expensive wood boards, and I have plenty of them. Mm-hmm. Okay, what you can do, and even if you have a plastic cutting board that's warped a little bit, and frankly, with your little flimsy ones also, put a damp cloth underneath it, put your board on top of it, and then your board won't slide around on the counter or bounce around. Fantastic advice. Thank you so much for coming on You're the show very today. Welcome. You're welcome. Next month, uh, we're going to discuss how to choose the right oven setting, right? Absolutely. That was Carolyn Tanner Cohen. Thanks to all my wonderful guests, Dr. Gordon Chang, Carlisle Jansen, Dr. Aaron Boynton, and Carolyn Tanner Cohen. And thank you all for listening to The Tonic. You can listen or download this episode as a podcast with full show notes, contact information for our guests, and links at thetonic.ca. To find out more about the show, you can always follow us at The Tonic Talk Show on Instagram or Facebook. 
For great articles written by amazing health and wellness writers, be sure to pick up your copy of Tonic Magazine. The November-December issue is now available free on racks at over 150 locations across the GTA and delivered with the Globe and Mail to home subscribers in 11 choice neighborhoods in Toronto. Or you can visit our website at tonictoronto.com. If you're interested in providing feedback or suggesting topics for the show, you can email me at jamie at tonictoronto.com. Next week on the show, we'll discuss preparing your bedroom for winter, the top nutrition trends of 2020, the pros and cons of various cooking oils, and collaborative divorce. Until then, this is Jamie Busson wishing you a healthy and happy week. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.